Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 12. This is found on page 979 of your Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against his schemes, against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you, Sean. Well, good morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really glad that you're here with us today, especially if you are newer to Christ Community. Uh, just uh, welcome. We're glad you're here with us today. And sometimes, I, I, I mean, I, I love that we have this, this discipline of after the scripture reading, we say, thanks be to God. But there are sometimes passages where it's, it's harder than others to say, thanks be to God, about. And this is one of those texts where maybe you, you listen to that read about slaves and masters and say, can we say thanks be to God about a passage like that? Um, but at Christ Community, we believe that all of God's word is inspired, uh, and we also believe that it's good news. And so this morning, as we walk through this text together, want to listen for and work together to hear how this passage is good news, how we can truly give thanks for this text. So uh, before we do that, though, I want to take a minute to pray and to ask the Holy Spirit who inspired these words to help us to understand and apply them. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that you have entrusted your word to your people. And we pray that now as we hear it read, as we hear it taught, that your spirit would be at work in this place, in this moment, um, teaching us challenging us, encouraging us for how we can be more effective, whole, integral followers of Jesus, uh, not just today here in this space, but on Monday in the places you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we all recognize that the Bible uh, can and has been used uh, to support all kinds of terrible evil in the world, right? I and mean, we could give lots of examples, but one of you, you think about uh, Nazi Germany, the rise of Nazi Germany in the 1920s, 1930s, and how uh, in many ways uh, the German church uh, was, was co-opted by a Nazi ideology, and the Bible was used to advance a, an anti-Semitism that led to the Holocaust. Now, of course, there were Christians like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others who became this, what was known as the confessing church that pushed back against that, but Christians regularly used the scriptures in, German, in Germany during that time to, to undergird, to provide a foundation for horrific evil. 
Um, or, or you think about, this is a little maybe a different kind of angle, but you think about Thomas Jefferson, and the, you may have heard of the Jefferson Bible. So, so Jefferson says, you know, I want the morals of Jesus. I want Jesus's kind of moral teaching, but I'm going to strip out all the supernatural. And so he literally takes a pair of scissors and cuts out all the passages of scripture that he doesn't like until he's left with just sort of the, what he considers the moral teachings of Jesus. Um, and we can even look within the Bible itself, and we look in the gospel accounts where Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness by the evil one, and even Satan, even the evil one, can quote scripture out of context to twist its meaning, to try to deceive the very Son of God, to distort scripture's intended meaning. And so when we encounter a passage like the one we've heard read today out of Ephesians chapter 6, we encounter a passage that has been used in the past to support some of the most atrocious evils in human suffering in history, uh, particularly in the American chattel slavery context of our own history. And Howard Thurman, who was a leading uh, kind of Christian pastor and theologian, he was active in writing and leading kind of the 1930s, the 1960s. He actually had a, a profound impact on Martin Luther King Jr., um, he wrote in his introduction to his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, I, I want to read you kind of his experience with his grandmother about this passage. So let me just read a little bit of this to you. He writes, During much of my boyhood, I was cared for by my grandmother, who was born a slave and lived until the Civil War on a plantation near Madison, Florida. He said, My regular chore was to do all of the reading for my grandmother. She could neither read nor write. Two or three times a week, I read the Bible aloud to her. I was deeply impressed by the fact that she was most particular about the choice of Scripture. For instance, I might read many of the more devotional Psalms, some of Isaiah, the Gospels again and again, but the Pauline epistles never, except at long intervals, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. When I was older and halfway through college, I chanced to spend a few days at home near the end of summer vacation. And with a feeling of great temerity, I asked her one day why it was that she would not let me read any of the Pauline letters. Again, he's training to be a pastor. He's a theologian. Grandma, why, why won't you ever let me read these Pauline letters? What she told me, I shall never forget. She said, during the days of slavery, the master's minister would occasionally hold services for the slaves. Old man McGee was so mean that he would not let a Negro minister preach to his slaves. Always the white minister used as his text something from Paul. At least three or four times a year, he used as a text, slaves be obedient to them that are your masters as unto Christ. And then he would go on to show how it was God's will that we were slaves and how if we were good and happy slaves, God would bless us. And she continued, I promised my maker that if I ever learned to read and if freedom ever came, I would not read that part of the Bible. And then Thurman picks up and says, since that fateful day on the porch in Florida, I have been working on the problem her words presented. Now, I, I think many of us here in this room today are probably wrestling with that same problem, not to the same level of personal uh, impact that Howard Thurman's grandmother was. But I think it's difficult for many of us to imagine how these words that we heard read a moment ago, words written by the Apostle Paul, inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit, God himself, in this passage can flow from the good news of the gospel. 
And how can these words in any way be good news for its time, let alone for our time? I think for many, an element of the distrust of the Bible, the scriptures, and deconstruction of faith comes from passages like this. So how do we go about reconstructing faith in places when we encounter texts like this? How do we understand them? What we'll see this morning is that this text and Paul's radical posture actually ignited and were the foundation for a movement to abolish slavery throughout the Roman Empire and empower God's people, both slave and free, with power to have human dignity and hope in their daily lives. But to see this, first we have to go back in time a little bit to the first century context. And what we want Paul to write in this passage is that slavery is over, that it, that it is no longer uh, exists then and now, and, and every time in between. And, and it's clear, it is clear from the beginning. Human beings, when you read Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and, and the picture of the goodness of God's creation prior to sin entering the world, it's clear that human beings were never designed to be owned by other human beings. And what Paul or any other passage of the Bible does not say, but sometimes passages of Scripture have been misinterpreted to say, is that slavery within society is necessary, at least, or, or in some places argued to be good. But on the contrary, Paul, writing in his letter to the Corinthian church, so we have two letters from Paul, 1 and 2 Corinthians, he's, when he writes to the Corinthian church, he is explaining to these groups of people that actually, uh, when you become a Christian, and he names a number of different groups, which I'll mention in a moment, that you don't actually have to change your status. If you're married, you can stay married. If you're single, stay single. If you are uh, Gentile and uncircumcised, you can remain uncircumcised. You don't have to get circumcised. You can remain in the place you are, but what's interesting, when he gets to slaves, he says something different. He says, you don't have, you can follow Jesus as a slave, but if you have an opportunity to get free, you should get free. Listen to verse 21. Paul writes this, were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. You can serve Jesus in any station in life. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. And then this is where Paul starts to get really radical. For he who has called you by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. So you're saying if, if you are out there and you are a slave, you're, you're actually free in Jesus. And oh, by the way, if you are free, you're actually a slave to Jesus. Verse 23, you were bought with a price. You do not become slaves of, of people. Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain in a situation in which God, in which he was called. Now that does not sound like a man who tells slaves to just stay in your place. So here's the reality. Paul lives in a world in the first century Roman Empire where slavery is. It is just the reality of life. Not that it ought to be, not that it can be or will be. This is the reality into which Paul lives, in which he's pastoring, and, and he's got to just, he's got to serve the people where they are at. Estimates vary on this, but probably a third of the Roman Empire uh, was slaves at this point. And here's also what we have to remember. Paul's power to be able to change that was incredibly limited. So 
you know, Paul is part of this Jesus movement that at this point is, you know, a few thousand people. It's only a few decades old. He's living in a dictatorship where the dictator, the Roman emperor, thinks he's God. And Paul is actually writing this letter from prison, like literally in chains. So his ability to affect structural change in the Roman Empire around something that is such a, a, a deeply ingrained part of that world is, is very little. He's not living in a democracy. He, he can't call his congressperson. He can't go and collect signatures for a petition to put something on the ballot. So his goal here in this letter is highly pragmatic, empowering people to do what they could where they were in the structure of slavery. And again, if you think about a third of the Roman Empire being slaves, if this church community at Ephesus is at all representative of the broader church community, like at least a third of the people who are a broader city, I mean, at least a third of the people in that church community that Paul's writing to are slaves. And we know that people who were on the margins who were often disempowered in the Roman Empire, like slaves, like women, were more drawn to Christianity than, than others. And so there's a good possibility that even more slaves are listening to this letter. And so Paul, as a good pastor, is saying, I need to help them where they are at to know what does tomorrow morning look like if I'm a Christian? And I can't just get my freedom. He's trying to help them find their way on their Monday life as followers of Jesus. So what, what does he do? How does he pursue the gospel liberation with the power that God's people have in that moment? Well, Paul makes a radical shift. And it's, it's really ingenious, I think, what he does, given his place and, and the ability or the lack of ability as the, to affect dramatic change across the entire Roman Empire. This is the shift he makes, that every Christian is a slave to Christ, and that that changes everything. I mean, we saw this in the verse we read just a moment ago in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that likewise he is called as a free man, is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. You are actually, you belong to God now. All of you, Paul is saying, whether your status in the Roman Empire is as a slave or as a free, you are owned, bought, belong to the God of the universe. And we may say, but wait, I thought Paul said we were free in Christ. Why is he saying we, we are slaves of Christ? And I think that has to do with the different ways in which we tend to use the language of freedom in our culture and how the Bible talks about what true freedom is. Because when we talk about freedom in our cultural context in kind of the progressive secular West, what we tend to mean is absolute negative freedom. That's kind of a philosophical term, absolute negative freedom. What that means is just that I have the freedom to do whatever I want, whenever I want. That's the true definition of freedom. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. It's a freedom from. It's a freedom from constraints. It's a freedom from responsibility. But what the Bible's vision of freedom is a, a vision of freedom, a Judeo-Christian vision of freedom that has shaped so much of Western culture in the past is actually a freedom that is a, a freedom of virtue. It's a freedom for something, not a freedom from something, but a freedom for something, a freedom to be able to serve. 
a freedom to become the kind of person who I was created to be, a a freedom to be um, the kind of person who's able to love and serve others. It's not just a negative freedom from something, but actually a positive freedom for something. And so Paul is saying here, for the slave, their real master is Jesus anyway. He's the catalyst for all their service. For the master in this context, they too are actually slaves to Jesus. They don't ultimately own anyone, and in fact, they belong to God. And that's the thing too, in this church context, the people who are listening to this letter read, you have slaves and masters sitting there in the same space hearing these words from Paul, that everyone belongs to Jesus, and they will have to give an account to Jesus for how they've treated their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a radical idea that every Christian is a slave to Jesus and it's the foundation for three massive changes in the relationship between masters and slaves and really between anyone with power at any time in any place. And here's the first change. It's this, that Christianity elevates those with the least power. What Paul's words do here is they elevate those with the least power in the same way as we've seen the past several weeks in the messages where we've talked about um, parenting and marriage, uh, this kind of section of a, of a writing from a teacher or an instructor or a philosopher was known in the ancient world. It was called a household code. There was other kinds of um, writers, Aristotle we'll look at in a moment, others who, who wrote these similar kinds of things to this is how your household should function. But in those codes, they were addressed to the patriarch who's over the house, and they were oriented to how can that, how can he kind of keep that house in order and sort of design it and align it for his comfort and flourishing. And so while children or spouses, wives were spoken of, they were never addressed directly. It was addressed to the patriarch for how he is to treat them. But here in this passage, Paul actually speaks directly to children. He speaks directly to wives. He speaks directly to slaves. This was unheard of. And it gives a certain kind of dignity and agency simply by addressing them and giving instructions to them, not just how they are to sort of passively respond to the one who's in charge of the household. And it's, again, it's the same here with slaves and masters. And, and not only does Paul address them, but he addresses them first. Again, the convention would dictate that if you were going to do this, you would at least address them after you had addressed the ones who were in that cultural context had more hierarchical authority. But he goes to them first, which is, again, this is classic Jesus. The first shall be last. And Paul tells these enslaved people that their work is not just for their master, but that all work is seen by God and done for him. They're not merely serving an earthly master. They are serving Christ despite how their master receives them. So they can indeed serve Christ now. This is verse 6. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing God's will from your heart. This is the reality for all of us that we belong to Jesus and we, he's our, our first and, our, and ultimately our last audience for all the work that we do. And Paul makes it clear that there is a reward coming, that even those who have had the fruits of their labor routinely and systematically stolen from them, 
can have hope that in Jesus they will receive a reward and inheritance. I think this is part of what, too, when we think about who we are made as, of, of people made in God's image who are designed to work, one of the atrocities of slavery, whether ancient or contemporary, is not just that someone is held in bondage, that they can't leave, which is certainly awful, but they are not able to benefit from the fruits of their labor. That, that, that what they do with their work, with their hands, is actually taken from them. As we know, just from an economic basis, right? What is, what is wealth? Wealth is production minus consumption. And when you're enslaved, you, you cannot benefit from the, the production that your body, that your mind, that your, has, has been put into the world is taken from you. That's one of the indignities of slavery. Not, again, most, first and foremost, just that you are not free, <laughs> to do as you wish, to move about. And to, but actually, the fruit of your work is taken from you. And Paul says that even as that is true for you, slaves, who are listening to this message, know that Jesus will reward you and he has an inheritance for you that cannot be taken. No matter what their earthly masters do or say or notice, Jesus is watching. If they have an unjust master, God will still give them their due. This is verse 8. Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. And again, this isn't new, because God has always been watching. God has always been watching. You think back to Genesis chapter 16. And in Genesis chapter 16, we meet a slave, and her name is Hagar. And she's actually owned by Abraham and Sarah. Again, this is, the Bible isn't endorsing this, it's just describing it. This is, the, this is just describing Abraham and Sarah's life. Abraham kind of makes this, this dumb choice. They're in Egypt. You should go back, read this chapter if you haven't read it before, chapter 16. He's worried that his really beautiful wife is going to get him killed because he's like, all the Egyptians are going to want to marry my wife, so they're going to kill me. So he lies and says she's my sister, and it gets this whole thing unfolds. We don't have time to go into it. But as they leave, part of what Pharaoh does is he gives them Hagar as a slave. Egyptian woman, she leaves what she's known in Egypt. She goes off into kind of the wilderness with Abraham and Sarah. And then, again, Abraham and Sarah, again, sometimes people think the Bible is a book of heroes. A lot of times these people make massive mistakes. Abraham and Sarah, heroes of our faith, are they in Hebrews chapter 11? Yes. Did they make some massive mistakes? Yes. Is that comforting to us? <laughs> who make massive mistakes, even though we love Jesus, yes. But they don't trust God to fulfill his promise to give them a son. And so in their own sort of way, they say, well, what, maybe we can make Sarah, this Hagar, maybe she can be a surrogate. Maybe we can have Abraham sleep with her and, and, and get her pregnant and have a son through her. So now Hagar's forced into dealing with that in her life. And, and you know what? She does get pregnant. And then Sarah's mad at her and kicks her out and sends her into the wilderness to die. She's pregnant with this boy, utterly alone. But God sees her. And in fact, Hagar, an Egyptian, so she, she's a Gentile, a woman, a slave, becomes the first human being in the storyline of the Bible to give God a name. She names God. This is Genesis chapter 
16, verse 13. So she, Hagar, named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy. For she said, In this place I have actually seen the one who sees me. She names God the one who sees. God always sees. He always has seen. He always will see. Regardless of power, status, position, low, high, he sees. And so Paul elevates those in his congregations that he is serving, those with the least power to the status of one who is seen by and working for the God of the universe. Uh, but that's not all. Second, Christianity also eliminates unlimited power. And this is where Paul addresses those who are masters in the congregation, who again, they're, they're sitting there and in, in probably in uh, one of these house churches right next to those who are slaves, hearing this letter being read. And Paul says that in Jesus' kingdom, the, the masters no longer have unlimited power. And that was incredibly radically counterculture because masters did have kind of absolute power over their slaves at that time. I just want you to listen to how Aristotle, sometimes I think we read passages like this in the Bible and, and they kind of make us uncomfortable, and that's, that's fair. But we haven't often read the kinds of writing that others were doing at that same time to, to contrast, to see how radical and how radically different Paul is. So listen to how Aristotle, again, who's writing several hundred years before Paul is writing, but how he talks about slaves and masters. Aristotle writes, For from the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjugation as slaves, and others for rule as masters. So let's just pause there. Aristotle's saying, from the very beginning, from the moment you're born, before you make any choices, some of you are just destined for slavery. Others are destined to rule. And then he goes on to say, it's better for slaves, as for all inferiors, that they should be under the rule of a master. Although the parts of the soul are present in all of them, male, female, child, slave, they are present in different degrees. So Aristotle's even saying that, like, kind of at an ontological level, slaves are less than, there's, there's different kinds of soul. For the slave has no deliberative faculty at all. Hence we see what is the nature and office of a slave. He who is by nature not of his own, but another's man is by nature a slave, and he may be said to be another's man who, by being a human being, is also a possession. And that is just so different than what Paul writes here, especially to masters. So listen to what, what Paul says in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Do the same to, to, as you expect your slaves to do. You do the same to them and stop threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. There's no favoritism. He's going to evaluate both. Again, this is radically different than Aristotle, and the command given there is to stop threatening. Because again, these, these masters had incredible power to threaten violence, sexual violence, even just to trade their slaves away to another master who would be more cruel. You better do a good job because I, could, I can give you someone who's going to treat you worse than I. Paul says, if you are a, a Christian master hearing this letter, you have to stop that. And, and certainly that also means you have to stop the practice of those things as well. Paul doesn't say, you need to stop, you know, go ahead and keep doing the awful things, just don't threaten them anymore. It's like Paul stops the practice 
and says, you can't even threaten to do these things. Because his masters, they are slaves to Jesus as well, and they are to be held accountable to Jesus for how they treat their slaves. There's no favoritism with Jesus. And he becomes the rubric, the kind of the interpretive framework for how one is to respect and serve and honor the dignity of all people. And this is the third thing, then. Christianity also equalizes power in the family. Both slaves and masters are addressed in light of the power that they possess. Both the slaves and masters have a similar framing. Do the same to them. What does that mean when Paul writes to the masters, do the same to them? The idea is that the masters are bound in Jesus to treat their slaves in the same way, with the same dignity and respect that they expect from their slaves. Again, this is, this is a classic Jesus, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. The Bible uh, translator's handbook, which is helping, you know, translators think about, okay, how do we understand the verse and, and translate it into a different language? I love how they draw out the nuance of what's here. They say it this way, masters, this is what the idea of the verse is, masters apply the same Christian standards to your treatment of your slaves as they are supposed to apply in their attitude toward you. Because you're brothers and sisters in, in this new family that Jesus is forming. Back to 521. I mean, this is all the same letter. Paul writes to the whole congregation, slaves and free, men and women, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Back up at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, he calls the whole congregation, slaves and free, beloved of God. And you can see here how the seeds are being sown that would make the practice of slavery in the Christian community absolutely untenable. Now, I, I get this still may feel like too little for us, that we would have wanted Paul just to say slavery ought to be abolished as soon as possible and masters free your slaves tomorrow. I, I get that. But there's one more thing we would have shaken these early churches when they heard these words read. And that is that a person named Onesimus, there's a good chance that he was there when this letter was read. Who was Onesimus? Well, Onesimus was a slave. And Paul wrote a letter. We actually have that letter in our Bible. It's called Philemon. Paul wrote a letter to Onesimus's master, Philemon. Now, they lived in a different city, but Paul had instructed that these letters, like Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, that those letters were what they called circulators, circular letters sometimes, that those letters would be passed around to these different churches. So it's possible that as this letter to the Ephesians got passed around to the other churches in the area, that Onesimus was even in the room as these words were being read. Now again, Onesimus was a slave. He was owned by Philemon. Philemon became a Christian. We don't know exactly when Onesimus became a Christian, but at some point, Onesimus escapes from Philemon, he becomes a Christian, and he connects with Paul. And Paul writes this letter, which we have in our Bibles, called Philemon. It's only one page long. Read it this afternoon. And in that, Paul is so savvy, and he's even, he kind of lays it on thick at a few points. He's even a little sarcastic at a couple of points. But basically, he says to Philemon, without directly saying it, this is again, this is first century Jewish culture, indirect kind of persuasion. But he says, look, Philemon, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. And if I've meant anything to you, Philemon, you're going to receive him back not as a slave, but as a brother. This is not the writing of a person who is trying to keep slaves in their place and reinforce 
a system of dehumanization. You can see how this plants the seeds of the abolition of slavery in the Roman Empire. I mean, Aristotle is saying they are fundamentally less than from the moment they are born. That is not Paul. That is not the gospel. And once you see the equality of humanity, once you see the other as your brother or sister, slavery is, is dead in the water. It cannot go forward. And again, this is one of the reasons why chattel slavery in the antebellum period in the United States is so atrocious, because the philosophy was that, that black people were less human because of the color of their skin. And this, is, this is not Christianity. This is regressive back to Aristotle, that some people are born inferior. This, that's not a biblical argument. That's a Greek philosophy argument. And yet, people use the Bible in passages like this to try to make a point that there are certain people who are destined to be slaves and certain people who are destined to be masters. Hierarchy based on the color of skin. But the problem is that that's nowhere in Scripture and it's contrary to the biblical witness from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And there were a lot of churches and a lot of Christians who taught that, who upheld that, and believed it. But sometimes that's the only story that gets told around Christianity and slavery in the United States. But it is also true that there were many Christians who read the Bible rightly. And the, the Bible became the foundation for, the motivation for them fighting against the slave trade and fighting against slavery and fighting for civil rights. I said at the beginning, the Bible can be twisted to justify horrible things, but it also is the foundation when rightly read for the liberation of people who were enslaved. Because where Paul, he had no power to bring about change in that dictatorship where he found himself. Many Christians during the 17, 18, 1900s used their Christian faith, used the truth of Scripture to fight for freedom and for justice. People like William Wilberforce People like Josiah Wedgwood, people like Harriet Beecher Stowe, Sojourner Truth, and many others who worked tirelessly to abolish the transatlantic slave trade, to abolish slavery in the United States and the British Empire. And Christianity, rightly understood, never leaves enslaved people enslaved. Far from it. It actually sets the foundation for their liberation. Okay, so with the last few minutes we have, though, you may be saying, okay, I get it, Bill. This actually has to maybe help me understand how to read this passage, but uh, I'm not a master. I'm not a slave. Hopefully that's true for all of us in this room that we're neither masters or slaves. So how does, how, what, other than knowing like what this passage didn't mean and how it was abused, how does this help me tomorrow morning? And, and I think the link here is this, that every one of us has power. And this is an example of how the gospel transforms the use of power. You know, some of us have more power, some of us have less power, but we all have power. Right? It's part of the goodness of us being made in the image of God. Part of imaging God is having power. We serve a God who is all-powerful. And just as power can be abused, it's not inherently evil, though. It's a good thing that God, it's, it's an attribute of him that we share with him, having power. And it's no more inherently evil than money or sex or comfort or any other good thing that we tend to make an idol is bad. But here's the test of power. The test of power is flourishing. And this is the core insight from Andy Crouch's book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. 
Because again, every one of us has power. Even the tiniest babies, right? Even newborn infants have power. They have the power to cry when they're hungry, when they need to be changed. If you've been a parent, you know that that, that power, it wakes you up in the middle of the night to go and care for them, right? That's a certain kind of power even the smallest of us have. But Andy says the question is this, that we have to ask ourselves with power is always, who is flourishing because you have power? That's the test. Am I flourishing only? Are other people flourishing? In particular, the people that I am exercising power over. And again, exercising power over is not an inherently bad thing. If you're a boss, you'd be irresponsible if you didn't lead your employees or your team. If you're a parent, with your family. So you have been, all of us have been given power in different places and in different ways. But the question is, how is that power being used? And are other people flourishing because we're in a place or position to have authority and influence and power? Christians use their power to serve. And also, we can't forget, too, that slavery is still very real in our world. Uh, the International Justice Mission, a Christian organization that partners with local authorities in 17 different countries around the world to combat human trafficking and slavery and violence and abuses of power, they estimate that 50 million people are enslaved worldwide today. 50, so this, is like, this isn't just a problem in the past, either in the first century or in the 19th century. This is a problem today in the 21st century. And forced labor and sex slavery, they still exist in our, in our country and in our city. And, and we may think, okay, but like, if that's true, even if this happened in Kansas City, well, what can we as a church do? Well, last fall, we hosted a seminar here actually in this room on human trafficking and brought in some experts who have done law enforcement investigations and, and worked in helping to prosecute human trafficking cases and rescue um, particularly women and children out of human trafficking situations. And someone asked, I to think, well, what can we as a local church do to help in this, this issue of, of human trafficking in our city, in Kansas City? And I was stunned by the response. And I don't think that this person, I, I don't know if they were a Christian or not, but this is what they, they said. He just said, from a practical standpoint, he said, the best thing that local churches can do to combat human trafficking is to care for single moms, to care for vulnerable single moms. And he said, the reason that is, he's like, I can't tell you how many cases I've worked where if there had been, it just would have been someone who could along, come alongside a vulnerable single mom who couldn't pay the rent or couldn't get the car fixed, that they wouldn't have ended up borrowing money from that friend of a friend who is now indebted to them, who says, now you owe me this, who entered them into a life of trafficking, typically prostitution. Or is it the other way that it happens? Is that you have a single mom who's working two jobs, and so the kids are always at home alone, and they're online by themselves, and they're enticed by predators who will promise them things, who want to meet up with them, and they end up trafficked as a result. He's like, if we just had support for vulnerable single moms, we could prevent so many of these women and children from ending up being trafficked. I never thought about that. To basically just be the church. Like, just care for vulnerable women in your city, and you will do a world of good for preventing people from ever ending up in that place. So one of the I was really encouraged by that. Like, 
by doing that work that the church has always done of caring for the vulnerable, we can help prevent human trafficking in our city, in our own backyard. Um, also, though, as a church, we partner with an organization called Rehope, who's formerly a restoration house, and they help those women and girls who are, have been trafficked to restore and to heal and to return to life, who are survivors of human trafficking. So again, no matter who you are, you have power. But we are not our own. We belong to Jesus. And that's a glorious place to be. For the one who was truly free with limitless power to choose laid down his life for us. He willingly died for us to make us free to serve him, to serve one another. This logic of life, this framework for being, frees us from oppression to service for the suffering servant, Jesus, who is our Lord and our master. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us uh, this passage in our Bibles. Help us to read it rightly and to apply it um, in the context in which we have been placed. And thank you that you have made us your own, that when we were enslaved to sin, that you redeemed us, that you paid the price, that you bought us out of that. Not so that we could do whatever we wanted, just to become enslaved to something else, but so that we could belong to you, to be called your sons and daughters, to be who you have made us to be, free from self, free from sin, free to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.